The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. Let us continue tonight with the presentation of the fundamental yogic text, the Gyaranda Samhita. We are very close to the end. In, our, in my last satsang, I finished chapter number five, which was pretty long and concerning pranayama. And in the chapters number six and seven, which are the last and much shorter, Gyaranda is going to explain his vision of meditation and of the state of samadhi. These chapters have approximately 20-something shlokas each, and uh, this means they are pretty short. It is possible that I will finish tonight the whole text of Gyaranda Samhita, which means that starting with next week, we are going to go into other subjects for the satsangs. Now, the lesson six, he calls them seven lessons. We'd call them chapters, being in a book, but they are presented as lessons because they are lessons which Garanda gives to, the, to his disciple, Chanda Kapali. And the, seven, the sixth lesson is called Dhyana Yoga. He uses the word Dhyana, which is the Sanskrit word for meditation. So this is the level of meditation from his course, from his presentation. He starts directly by saying, meditation is known to be of three kinds, gross, which in Sanskrit is designated by the word stula, which means basic, like terrestrial, earthy, of light, which is by the Sanskrit word jyoti. Jyoti means light, but it means an astral light. Even the astrology in India is called jyotish, the Vedic astrology, by which you mean that you are getting from the sun and the moon and from Mars and Venus, you are getting some astral light. There are vibrations of astral type. That's why it's called astral, right? Because it's related with the astras. It's related with the level where the astrological influences are there. So when it says of light, it means of astral light, of subtle light. We are going to talk about that in a minute. And subtle or sukshma. The names are not really the best names because if you describe things on three levels, usually in India they will be gross, subtle, and supreme. Or gross, subtle, and causal, like stula, sukshma, and karana, or other. It's the typical, there are some typical classifications in three of the spiritual reality, as they have been practiced in India by many authors and in many traditions. Gyaranda has his own way of calling it, so he calls the lowest of them stula, the highest of them sukshma, which means subtle, and the middle of them he calls it jyoti, which means of light, of astral light, which designates immediately that he is referring to the subtle influences, as we call them, in yoga. And he explains, when a concrete figure, like an image with a form, such as a guru, a deity, 
and so on is used as support, that is stula. So stula is a meditation with a concrete form involved into it. When a form of subtle fire is used, he uses the word tejas, a subtle fire, like something made of the visions of the mind, which are like made of fire. We'll get again to that in a second. Then when, so when a form of fire, an invisible form of energy is used as support, that is jyoti. And finally, when Brahman, Kundalini, all the Supreme Divine are seen as Bindu, that is Sukshma. So when divine things, he chooses here something, Brahman, which is the Vedantic name for God, for the Supreme Consciousness, or Kundalini, which is the Tantric name for Kundalini Shakti, the Supreme Energy in the human being, or the Supreme Divine, whatever, when they are seen as Bindu, Bindu means a dot, like a star, like a shining star, like something which irradiates from a dot, from a globule. So that's a symbol, exactly as you have in yantras. We don't have a yantra here, but in the yantras of yoga, there is very often a dot right in the middle, and you are supposed to look straight into that dot. So when things are used with like this, with this kind of symbolic visualization, not with a form, not with a fire, so there is no light, there is no form, there is only a symbol, then that he calls sukshma, or the highest of the three. And without any further ado, he starts giving example of astula dhyana, the gross one. Gross is not used here in a pejorative way like gross. It's used in the meaning that it's the most down to earth. And as such, everybody can do the stula dhyana, these meditations are available to everyone. You are going to recognize that it resembles very much with what some New Age people do today when they do the so-called guided meditation. Guided meditation with visualization, plenty of it, is very much like Geranda describes Stula Dhyana. He says, imagine, it's the Shloka 2, imagine an excellent ocean of nectar in the region of your heart that in the middle of this ocean there is an island made of precious stones, the sand itself made of jewels. Three, on the four sides of the island there are kadamba trees laden with many sweet flowers and next to them a row of flowering trees. Four, such as, um, uh, such as Malati, which is the jasmine tree, such as Malika, Jati, Kesara, Champaka, Panjata, Parijata, I'm sorry, and that's the coral tree. Some of them are such obscure brands of trees that I give the name in Sanskrit, and if you'll have the text and want to research what the Latin name for each of them, doesn't really matter. He means a lot of colorful, beautiful trees, exactly like being Geranda, obviously living in the countryside close to the jungle, is familiar with a lot of trees, and he mentions some of the most outstanding of those. Stalapadma, or terrestrial lotuses, uh, as opposed to the lotuses which grow on water, there exists a brand of lotus trees, lotus bushes or shrubs, which are growing on the land as well. Imagine that the fragrance of these flowers spreads all around in every quarter, 
So I see it's a meditation where you visualize, you see, but you suggest the smell, that it's a beautiful smell and all that. Five, in the middle of this garden, imagine a beautiful, magical kalpa tree having four branches representing the four Vedas and perpetually laden with flowers and fruits. The kalpa tree is a tree which fulfills wishes. It's like those trees where people are tying their wishes on the branches of the tree. That's a tradition in many cultures of humanity that there exists a wish-fulfilling tree just as there are wish-fulfilling gems and other such rarities. It's the result of a magical way of thinking. So in the middle there is a kalpa tree and with four branches like in the four cardinal directions, as a symbol of the Vedas. Six, bees are humming around it and cuckoos are singing. Beneath the tree, imagine a rich temple platform made of gems. It's like a fairy tale, right? It sounds like Walt Disney big time. It's like magical trees and beautiful. It's exactly like if you watch Snow White by Disney, or if you watch Bambi by Walt Disney Studios or any other idyllic, utopic thing where nature is presented as beautiful and ecstatic. This is to be visualized. So, of course, you have to go through the visualization on and on. And now there are sounds with bees humming and cuckoos singing and so on. So it becomes more and more pastoral, more and more idyllic. Seven, in the middle of this temple, so there is a temple right there with a kadamba tree, see a beautiful canopied throne. Paryanka is a Sanskrit name. It's a typical throne used but protecting you from the sun as well, so it's a canopy type of throne inlaid with jewels upon which sits your tutelary deity, the word used in the shloka is clearly Ishta Devata. Meditate on that according to the technique taught by your guru. So, before doing this meditation, you should have a guru. Your guru should have told you what your tutelary deity is, such as, for example, in Agama, when you study the ten great cosmic powers, you can reach to the conclusion or be told by your teacher that this is your dominant cosmic power. And in India and in Tibet, in both the tantric traditions, they often came to the point where this was called Ishta Devata. Isha is leader, is like the Lord, and Devata deity. So is the Lord deity, the principal deity. Each human being has a principal deity. A simple way of doing that in astrology would be by looking at people astrologically and looking at their planetary dominance, like some of you here in this room are dominated by Mars, by Venus, by Mercury, by the Sun, by Saturn, by this or that. Well, in case you didn't know, all those are gods, according to the Greek and Roman mythology, as well as according to the Scandinavian and Hindu. And therefore, if you, any one of you says, I am a person dominated by Venus, then it means you are dominated by the goddess Venus, and Venus can be considered to be your Ishta Devata. Of course, the tantric systems of India and Tibet are much more evolved than this, 
but in the Western astrology, this would have been taken and it would have been adapted according to the environment. Later Christian practitioners, they wouldn't want to worship Venus. And then the hermetic magicians, they invented an archangel which corresponds to Venus, the archangel of planet Venus. So it's not okay for a Christian person in the European medieval time to pray to Venus because that is paganism and it's a heresy. But it can be perfectly okay to pray to the angel of Venus or to the archangel of Venus because those belong to God. And that's a way of creating peace between a monotheistic system of thinking and accepting at the same time multiple lower spiritual influences. Venus is not God, but obviously Venus as a planetary influence and as a goddess is tolerated by God and integrated in the existential system on this planet. And therefore, here you have a lot of stories. I cannot talk now in this commentary here totally about the system of the Ishta Devata, but tantric practitioners from India and Tibet and many of the Hindu and the Tibetan Buddhist practitioners, they get to find out at some point or another through the grace of some guru, something which they figure out that that was their Ishta Devata. For example, Swami Shivananda stated that his Ishta Devata was Krishna. He was, Krishna was his tutelary deity. So if Swami Shivananda practices according to Geranda, he has to see an island with a temple and a throne, a golden throne, canopy throne, and on that throne sits Krishna in glory. Krishna is the center of all this visualization. For him, Krishna is the king of this picture, of this image. Krishna, the Tibetans would use it as a mandala or drive it as a tanka, and in the middle of this tanka or of this mandala sits Krishna, for example, in this situation for Swami Shivananda. So therefore, here the, this meditation is going from the margins to the center, to the center, to the center, to the center, and in the center of everything, this being in your heart, it's visualized like in your heart. So in the center of this, there is your Ishta Devata and this Ishta Devata, then Geranda says, meditate on this according to the technique taught by your guru. Some gurus follow strictly the tantric norms by which every deity has a nama rupa, a name and a form. So you need to know the name of the deity. You need to have a picture or a sculpture of the deity. And then besides nama and rupa, the inner things are that there is a yantra and a mantra. The mantra, the sonoros, resonance, syllable, usually a bija mantra of that devata, and visually a yantra, a geometrical diagram. In Tibet, sometimes instead of a yantra, using a mandala or a tanka, simply a devotional painting of some sort. So, how you meditate on the Ishta Devata, Geranda doesn't mention that. That's, he says that's something which you learned from your guru. 
but I'm teaching you now dhyana in terms of yoga. See, there is a slight difference between the system of devatas, which is more religious, can be considered part of Hinduism or part of Buddhism in Tibet, and yoga. In yoga, he says the devata or the guru, if you don't have any ishta devata, then the guru is placed in that image and you meditate with whatever you, by whichever method has been taught to you. Eight, contemplate on the appropriate form, ornaments, vehicle of the deity or deva. So each deity is a complex thing. For example, many of you see Ganesha. We have a Ganesha hall. And in the Ganesha hall, there are at least two statues of Ganesha. And you would say, if my tutelary deity is Ganesha, then I would meditate on Ganesha. But Ganesha has a specific form, which is canonical. Like Ganesha is not just sitting in whatever position and doing whatever. Ganesha always has in his left arm a bowl full of sweets. And his nose, his trunk, is tasting of those sweets. So there is a canonical form, exactly as in the Buddhist iconography, or in the Christian iconography. The saints are always represented in a standard way. So you meditate on the appropriate form, on the ornaments, because the ornaments say something such as, this deity is yellow in color. It's not the fantasy of an artist that is yellow. It is related with the dominant chakra energy of that deity. It's related with the dominant chakras on which you feel the energy of that deity. It can be considered like this is the color of the aura of that deity, if you want to put it like this. So many of these symbolic things like form, ornaments, color, and others, they are specific. And it says here even vehicle, the great Ganesha that has got the body or the head at least of an elephant, the great Ganesha is carried by an animal. That animal is sometimes very majestic, like Shiva is carried by a bull, the bull of Shiva, suggesting something, right? That when somebody says, man, you are like a bull, you know, you are like a, there is something in it. And <coughs> Durga is riding on a lion or on a tiger, depending on the parts of India where that tradition comes from. But Ganesha, the plump elephant-looking god, he's riding on a mouse or on a rat, which is a very strange, like, one should investigate. These are symbols created over thousands of years, and each one of them has a meaning. I'm not going to go into the details of it, but here Geranda says, remember all the iconographic details which you probably have learned from the guru or from the tradition or from the family or from wherever that knowledge came to you, the appropriate form, ornaments, vehicle of that deity. And then he concludes by saying this is an example of stula dhyana. So stula dhyana is just a meditation with mantra, with devotion, with smells, with humming of insects and so on. It's an idyllic, beautiful, like you go in the garden of paradise and in the middle of the garden of paradise sits Kali and then you are worshipping Kali. That's, he calls this Stula Dhyana. Like it's a simple, everybody can do it. 
it's a bit of a visual and more than visual, it's a, a form of a bit of a guided meditation. In shloka number 9, he gives an alternative. So he says, or, or, so it means that's another one, another form. He gives at least about two forms for each so people can choose and get the point. Or let the yogin imagine that in the pericarp of the great thousand petaled lotus or sahasrara, there is a smaller lotus with 12 petals. So he says, imagine that in your crown chakra, in your thousand lotus petal, in the middle of it, you have a 12, a smaller lotus, like a lotus in a lotus. That would be the center of Sahasrara. Uh, this imagination is not completely some fantasy of Geranda. This is how the crown chakra is represented in the Indian iconography of chakras, that in the middle of Sahasrara, there are 12 spokes which reflect from the heart chakra. And there is a special connection between the heart chakra and the crown because the heart chakra has 12 spokes and there is a sort of a mini heart chakra, a sort of a projection of the heart chakra in the crown. 10, shloka number 10. Its color, the color of this little lotus up here in your crown, in the middle of your crown chakra is white, brightly shining. That's important. The text mentions clearly white, brightly shining. It doesn't say white like the moon or white like the milk or white like the mother of the pearl. All those silvery matte whites, they are whites which belong to Svadhisthana. But the white of a shining star, which is almost bluish in its shining, it's like the soldering iron white, like the electric wire type of white, that kind of dazzling bright white, that one corresponds to Sahasrara indeed. So it's interesting that even Geranda, there exists the word in Sanskrit by which he says effulgent, shining. He doesn't say just white. He says uh, bright white, brightly shining. And it has 12 Bija mantras in its petals, which are quoted here as being ha sa ksha ma la va ra yum ha sa ka prem in this order. All this story about the mantras is suddenly Geranda blurts out something from um, mantra yoga. These mantras, which gives them a separate, they are actually part of some very great mantras of the yoga tradition, and he gives them, just he leaves them there. He doesn't say anything. He says you can visualize these 12 mantras like on the 12 petals of Sahasrara in this order. So two, three of them are even are repeated. Two of them are even repeated twice, which may create some sort of confusion. 11, Shloka 11. In the center of this smaller lotus, which has these 12 petals with 12 mantras, so like you don't like the deity, the Ishta Devata story. Okay, we can give you something a little bit more abstract because some people would feel awkward to imagine a garden of paradise with Kali on a golden throne and worship her. Some people think this is cultish. I'm becoming Hindu, I'm becoming Tibetan Buddhist or something. 
I don't want to go into such details. Okay, do you prefer ha, sa, ka, prem, and all that? You like something a bit more technical, there is no kali, there is no form of a deity, then you can go that way. You can replace the complexity of that visualization with a visualization which is more dry, doesn't have so much emotional meaning, that there are 12 spokes in your, uh, in the core of the core of your Sahasrara, and there you see Hasak, Shamala, and so on, and so on. That, that's purely technical, and it can work for the people who feel any rejection or awkwardness about the Hindu pantheon thing. So he says, in then visualize further on that in the center of this smaller lotus, there is a triangle with the sides Akkatha and the points Ha-Laksha, and in the middle of it presides the Pranava, which is the nickname for the mantra Aum. So this is totally based on phonemes of Sanskrit, and you are creating a sort of a geometrical structure with letters and syllables of the Sanskrit language, which probably will have no meaning for you. They're like it's a technical game. So he says in here there is a triangle with the sides akatha. This is a typical thing in Sanskrit. The sides represent three groups of phonemes. A means a and the next 15 vowels. So it's from a to visarga. A, a, e, e, u, u, and all that. So it's 16 letters. So like it's a triangle. Imagine here a small triangle. And on one of the sides of the triangle, you have the 16 vowels of Sanskrit. Of course, if you are born in the Sanskrit environment, you can visualize them in Sanskrit. If you are a Farang, you can visualize them written in the diacritic signals of the translation of Sanskrit, if you are not good enough to remember the shape of all the 49 Sanskrit letters. So there is A, Ka, Ka is the first consonant, and the Sanskrit alphabet starts from Ka, and then it goes Ka, Ka, Gag, Hang, A, Cha, Cha, Jaj, Hang, Ya, Tata, and so on, and it goes, and then there is a number of these, a number of these, uh, there are 16 such consonants, and then the next one will be ta, and therefore it's called the triangle, which is called akatha. Everybody in Sanskritology who dealt with mantras and with the mysteries of the mantras and of the Sanskrit alphabet, when you say there is a triangle akatha, knows the letters from A to Visarga are on one side, the letters from Ka to Ta are on the other side, and the letters from Ta to Ha are on the other side. So you are having all the letters of Sanskrit placed 16, 16, 16. And the points of it are then the last three letters of Sanskrit, which are Ha, La, and Ksha. Here they stretched it, because the Sanskrit alphabet has 49 letters, then you add a letter ksha, which is a double consonant, k and sh, ka and sha, ksha, and you create a double consonant, and that's the letter number 50. And then when you divide it in three, the number has to be a multiple of three. And 49 is not a multiple of three, 50 is not a multiple of three, but 51 is. And then you add a 51th letter, which is la, like in Spanish when you have double L and a, la, it's a double L, it's an emphasized L, it's called the Vedic L, because it's used in some Vedic expressions, and it's some specific to the time of the Vedas, 
to the old Sanskrit. So I'm sure most of you, after me talking for five minutes about this, you can't figure out the slightest part of what I said. This is only meant if you study it, like you have to know the Sanskrit alphabet, you have to make a paper diagram and draw all these 16 letters, and then the extra one in the corner of the triangle, and then go on this side and write 16 letters, and then put the, this letter, and then go and see. This is like a mandala made of 51 Sanskrit characters, three of them in the corners, and 48 of them on the three sides of a triangle, therefore 16, 16, 16. It's like a yantra made of mantras, and those mantras are Sanskrit phonemes. In the Sanskrit language, for some levels of the tantric practice, some very high levels of the tantric practice, this story with the letters of the Sanskrit alphabet and the garland of the Sanskrit alphabet and others are extremely esoteric and extremely powerful. And thus they have a meaning, and this is what is leading us to the mysterious science of the tattvas, of the mantras, and all that. This is a part of the tantric science which I teach only at the level of the advanced teachings in the fourth stage of Agama teachings, because this is really, really highly advanced and esoteric. Here, Geranda demonstrates that he knows about this, and he recommends a visualization where in the middle of the 12th petal lotus with some funny syllables on its petals, there, are, there is a triangle with 51 Sanskrit phonemes this arranged as a triangle, so it's like a geometrical mandala. And in the middle of all these, there is the famous pranava or aum, exception made of very rare traditions, except, for example, one of them being Kashmiri Shaivism, which is over the top, which is like the top of the top. In 90-something percent of the Indian mystical literature, including in the Upanishads and in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali and in the Geranda Samhita, when you want to designate the highest in terms of mantras, it's always Aum. Aum, the mantra Aum, remains attention for those of you who are total beginners or almost, because the mantra Aum is not the mantra that you guys are learning here in Laya Yoga in the first level of Agama teaching. That's another mantra, and it has a difference. There is a one-letter difference in that mantra. But there exists the well-known mantra Aum, which is depicted everywhere. I'm surprised we haven't got one somewhere on a wall somewhere. <clears throat> and the mantra Aum is the sort of the queen of the mantras in classical India. In classical Indian spirituality, you'll always say that if you want to designate the highest, the highest is always designated by Aum as a mantra. So that's why here you have a temple on your crown chakra, a 12-petal lotus, and on that temple there is a triangle like a throne, and on that throne there is God under the form of the mantra Aum. The mantra Aum is visualized like being on top of everything there. And it says again, also contemplate that on top of it, on top of the mantra Aum, there is a seat with Nada and Bindu on it. 
this is already mystical stuff because you'd say above the mantra Aum. Yeah, the mantra Aum is written a little bit like a digit three in European language. And then many of you who saw the mantra Aum may have seen but didn't realize it was not part of it, that on top of it there is a crescent of a moon and a dot which looks very much like the Islamic flags. A moon crescent and a star on a dot on it. That crescent of the moon and dot, they are called Nada and Bindu. And in Sanskrit phonemics, they represent some resonances in the uh, sounds and they are used in the science of mantras. And we teach some of these things in our meditation retreats when we teach the Uchara of Aum. We teach a little bit about this in the Kashmiri Shaivism introduction workshop. And, of course, we teach about it in extenso in the advanced teachings and the teachings of Kashmiri Shaivism. So that, that pushes further the symbolism of Aum. It's not enough to have Aum. Aum has to have a sort of a cherry on top of the cake. And the cherry on top of the cake is even on the mantra. In Sanskrit, you have a moon crescent and a dot, which is like a pyramidal thing on top of the mantra. And those are called usually Nada and Bindu. And in terms of the science of mantra, they represent a refinement of the sound of the mantra. When the sound of the mantra becomes internal, very fine, very refined, and it goes higher and higher. And then he pushes the envelope even more. He says there is a throne with Nada and Bindu. On that seat, there is a pair of swans and two wooden sandals. The pair of swans is a strange concoction of the Vedantic and Upanishadic philosophy because the swan is called in, Ham in Sanskrit Hamsa and Hamsa is a mantra almost as famous as Aum, not quite as famous as Aum because Hamsa is the, supposed to be the mantra of the breathing and all these breath-based med breath meditations all these meditations which are based on the awareness of the breathing process, in India, not in the Buddhist environment, but in India, they use the mantras hum and sa, which become swans and so on. So the swan is supposed to be a symbol of some divine life, and the yogis make analogy between the swan and uh, a lot of things, the supreme self, and even statements in Sanskrit like aham sa instead of ham sa, Aham, sa, which means I am that, or sa aham, which becomes so ham, which means that I am. And there is a whole plethora of uh, uh, things there. I'm not going to go into the detail. Remember that the swan is one of the divine, like you would say that a, like a Christian man would visualize the throne of God. And around the throne of God, there are four seraphims with many wings and many eyes. The seraphims from Christianity or Judaism are as holy as the swans are in Hinduism, as symbols of something divine, immortal, pure, and all that. So you contemplate a seat with Nada and Bindu on top of the Aum. On that seat, a pair of swans and two wooden sandals. That's where it hits the... This, when we reach here we know that it comes very close to a text 
when Arthur Avalon translated the famous text called Satchakra Nirupana, which he translated under the name uh, The Serpent Power, one of his main books, in that text he had the opportunity to add another Sanskrit text. So there are two texts in that, one of them which takes 90% of the book and one of them which takes 10% of the book. The one which takes 10% of the book is a small yoga text which is called Paduka Panchaka. And Paduka Panchaka is basically a meditation in which you meditate on the footprints of your guru or on the footprints of Vishnu or if you were Buddhist, on the footprints of Buddha or something like this. Because in India, there is always the tradition of worshipping the feet of the person, both as a sign of humility that I am exactly like Jesus when he comes to John the Baptist and he asks to be baptized and John the Baptist realizes this guy is my daddy, you know, and he says it is I who need to be baptized by you, no? And he, he says, you know, I'm not, he says at some point, I'm not worthy to tie your sandals. To be worthy to tie the sandals, you know. Any one of you says, I'm not worthy to tie the sandals of one like Jesus. That means I can't even touch the feet of Jesus. When Mary Magdalene encountered Jesus, she washed his feet with myrrh and wiped them with her own hair. Touching the feet of somebody was an ancient sign of reverence, meaning I am here and your feet are somewhere here. So you start where I end, like you are way higher than me, you are way more spiritual than me, I'm looking up at you, and all I can see is your feet. Your feet are at my level. My guru did exactly the same, my Diksha guru did the same thing to me when he gave me the sannyasa years ago in India, because according to the ritual, we were supposed to give each other the prasad, the tilak mark on the forehead. And he gave me the tilak mark, and when I had to give it to him, he showed me to put it here. Like I gave a tilak mark on his big toe. His big toe was here. My forehead and his big toe were equivalent. This is a way of saying you are way higher than I am. It's a form of showing respect. So that's why in the many Indian and Tibetan visualizations, the gurus or the deities are always placed higher and people are worshipping the feet, the footmarks and so on. And it is a tradition because there is a tradition which goes deeper and which says that the feet represent the whole being. That the feet are representing something very harmonious. The feet are in relationship with the astrological sign of the Pisces, which, which astrological sign is the last sign of the zodiac and it represents a wisdom at the level of Ajna Chakra. The feet allow you to have zone therapy, which means every gland and organ and part of the body is projected on the feet and you can do acupuncture or acupressure on the feet. As somebody wise, uh, once said, the feet are very wise and people can change or hide their hands and their face, even performing plastic surgery, but very seldom do people hide their feet. 
if you are going to pay attention from now on at the feet of people, like whenever you meet with a person, study carefully their feet. I'm not even going to give you any hints, just up to you. I can promise if you do that for three years, you are going to understand people in a different way because the character of people is written on their feet very clearly. The feet are a reflection of the being more than the face and the hands. We have learned to make grimaces on our face and play poker faces or whatever, so we hide our real nature. We may even perform surgery on our face to straighten our nose or lips or whatever it is. With the hands, we can take good care and other things are there. Even the hands can show a lot as the face. There is a science of physiognomy. There is a science of chiromantic, palm reading and hand reading, and then the feet. Out of these three, people pay more attention to the face and to the hands, not enough attention to the feet. The feet contain the whole being, exactly as Ajna Chakra gives us a synthesis of the whole being and of all the chakras. That's why the feet are representing something very special. It's not a coincidence that there appears this thing of worshipping the feet. And then people in India use often these formulas. To the memory of my guru, says Maharishi Bhaiyogi, to the memory of my guru Swami Brahmananda Sarasvati, at whose feet I found the light. Like you find enlightenment at the feet of the guru, not at the knees of the guru, not at the loin of the guru, not at the shoulder or elbow of the guru, at the feet of the guru. That's a typical Indian and Tibetan expression. And that's why, of course, here they say, on top of everything, even on top of our womb and so on, there is a pair of wooden sandals. My Indian guru had, for example, such a pair of wooden sandals, and he wore it until he died. Like he was very traditional, very conservative in his, and all he simply said, I'm a guru, I wear wooden sandals sandals. I'm not going to buy myself hush puppies or I don't know what else. I wear wooden sandals like the sadhus of 500 years ago. That was the typical shoe of the sadhus and of the gurus that they were wearing a pair of simple wooden sandals and those wooden sandals were worship. If a guru was not in the ashram, they would leave his wooden shoes on a pedestal and people who came and visited the ashram, they could touch the sandals and take a blessing from the sandals of the guru. Like the guru gives his blessing via his feet. It's like it's pouring down from the guru. The apana of the guru is carrying with it miracles. It's carrying with it healing energy, enlightening energy. And it's true that both guru tilopa in Tibet and Guru Ramakrishna in India, in Bengal, they both of them touch their disciple with their feet, one of them with a sandal, and they put them in samadhi. So that's a sort of a thing like the, the, the foot of the Guru is good enough to put you in samadhi if he wants. So, you know, so it's like, it's okay. It's okay to worship the feet of the Guru. There is a beautiful filming with Swami Shivananda where they do a Guru Puja on him. 
and the, the most of the Guru Puja is focused on washing his feet and putting garlands of flowers on his feet. A Christian nun who was part of the pupils of Shivananda, she felt offended by it, like, you know, you treat Shivananda only as Jesus deserves to be treated like this, because she was Christian bigotic, you know. And she asked Shivananda, why do you allow people to do this to you? Isn't this inflating your ego and boosting your ego? And Swami Shivananda was actually very humble. And he said, you know what? This is the custom in India. Wherever you come, you come from your customs from another land. Here in India, this is the custom. And this is what people have done for a thousand years. And if I don't let them do it, I'm offending them. And I'm taking something very precious from them. So it's okay for me to let go and just to have to look into my ego and to see if I'm not getting puffed up with vanity and if I'm not getting carried on in some ridiculous arrogance that now if people are touching my feet, I have become so great and so important. So anyway, um, when I was in India, for example, this was a tapas. I, I had it as a duty and I did it gladly. Every day, in every 24 hours after the sleep, after the night sleep, every day when I met my guru first time in the day, I didn't have to do it every time, but first time in the day when I met my guru, I did three prostrations at his feet. He stopped very compassionately, and I did three full body prostrations touching his feet. No? This was the rule, this is the Indian rule, and I never considered it demeaning or... And if I would say the word humiliating, then I would be happy. If it was humiliating, I would be very happy to be humiliated because humility is one of the greatest virtues the human being can attain. And thus, um, this is the thing to understand a bit the environment. And then, of course, on top of Aum and on top of everything, there are two sandals, which is the symbol of somebody who is there. And that somebody, of course, can be Shiva or your guru, your physical guru. Remember, it's still stula dhyana. So it's a meditation which contains visual things, crown, chakra, and on top of the crown chakra. So, okay, you didn't like the one with the Ishta Devata. Now here, this one is very abstract with mantras and aum. And then there are two sandals, and there he says, 13, shloka 13. There, let him meditate on his Guru Deva, and the alternative translation, the Sanskrit, is on purpose ambiguous here, because it simply says it in such a way that it can be understood as Shiva himself. So this leaves an elasticity. If you do not have a good personal relationship with your Guru, and you don't trust him, her, and you don't have a good chemistry with him and her, then you can go directly to Shiva. One of my yoga teachers, I had a friend, my friend always said, when I do yoga, this I consecrate it to you, to the teacher. And I said, I don't consecrate it to you, I consecrate it directly to God. And he said, it's okay. Either alternative is okay. Either you consecrate to the guru, which is more simple because you have seen the guru, or you consecrate to a mental form, but that brings us back to Ishta Devata, because if you couldn't do it with Kali or with Krishna, now you are supposed to do it with Shiva, and it again sounds cultish. So the alternative is 
guru lineage like you consecrated to the guru by the principle the friend of my friend is my friend if my guru has reached God and I reach my guru then I reach God because my guru has reached God already so it's a transitional thing which is done this is in Tibet called the guru yoga that by piggybacking on the guru you go wherever the guru goes if you piggyback on Ramakrishna you become Swami Ramakrishnananda there is such a Swami Ramakrishnananda while Ramakrishna was sick with cancer 11 out of the disciples of Ramakrishna every day did their spiritual practice as Ramakrishna told them to do and one of them stopped his spiritual practice and tended physically to Ramakrishna he became the nurse of Ramakrishna for several months in the end both these 11 and this one they all got enlightened this one got enlightened by guru yoga and this one's got enlightened by general spiritual practice so this works in Indian and Tibetan environments in other ways there is another Swami later who became the devoted disciple of Sarada Devi of the wife of Ramakrishna who also became enlightened and then he became called Swami Saradananda and he became enlightened as well by piggybacking on Sarada Devi on her spiritual accomplishment this is called Guru Yoga if you identify with Jesus and Jesus is the Son of God then you are the Son of God it's a transitional logic and it works very simple so he says on top of these sandals there meditate on the Guru Deva or on the Lord Shiva if whichever is convenient for you as having two arms and three eyes there is always the third eye as you mark that dressed in white and anointed with fragrant sandal paste these are typical Indian things I don't know if you have ever seen a sadhu or a guru or somebody rubbing themselves with sandal paste sandal paste was quite expensive fragrant it's a thing and it's a holy thing sometimes tilak marks are made of sandal paste and so on incense sticks are made of sandal paste and all that so allegorically the guru or Shiva is dressed in white and anointed with fragrant sandal paste and finally the last shloka of this Tula Dhyana like here you have a visual meditation with form with flesh wearing garlands of white flowers with his Shakti to his left and having a red color the Shakti so you are visualizing not only the Guru or Shiva but the Shakti of the Guru or the Shakti of Shiva Parvati the Shakti standing on the left that's the traditional polarity in Indian Tantra that the female is always on the left side like on the body so always the female sits to the left of the man and the man since sits to or stands if they stand or sit together they stand in this way that's the correct polarity and the Shakti is red this is a typical Indian thing Sh Shiva white Shakti red Shiva white like the sperm and Shakti red like the menstrual blood as symbols of white and red a symbol of the polarity heaven and earth Shiva and Shakti contemplating thus the Guru Stuladhyana is successfully accomplished 
Here, Geranda uses a very powerful word because he says prasida, not only sida, it's not perfect. The stula dhyana is not only perfect, it's highly perfect. It's very powerful and accomplished. So he gave two examples of stula dhyana, the one with the island and the throne and the ishta devata, and the one with the crown chakra, the mantra triangle, the aum, and the two sandals, which are the sandals of Shiva or of the guru. Therefore, on top of the head. This meditation with placing divine forms on top of the head is done almost identically in Tibet, where you place forms of Buddha, imaginarily, mentally, on top of the head. Gopi Krishna, a Kashmirian practitioner of Kundalini, who encountered many obstacles and problems, but still had some knowledge about Kundalini and this, he was practicing meditations where he was visualizing Shiva, either under the form of a Shiva Linga, of a phallus, golden in color, or of a dancing Shiva, or a sitting Shiva statue, on top of his head. Like this was his main meditation. May visualize a Shiva here and express attraction, devotion, and all the rest. That, those were the two alternatives of Stula Devata, and I think you got the point. The point is you are talking about something which is a form, you visualize a form of something which is worshipful and you go for it. And he moves to the Jyotir Dhyana. Jyotir means made of light and this is the explanation which I owe to you. It is a well-known thing that if you are strong on Manipura Chakra, you become very visual. Manipura Chakra is the chakra of vision and the third body, the astral body, which corresponds to the third chakra, the third body is also a body which is very visual. That's why when people go to the astral body, they see colors, they have a lot of visual perceptions. In the astral body, you can have hallucinations. In the astral body, you can take uh, psychedelic mushrooms and you can see lots of colors and forms and so on. Because the astral body and the fire element they are all very focused on light. And that's why many of the yogis and many of the spiritualists that were very powerful on Manipura or on the fire element or on the astral body, they had a spirituality which was very, very much based on colors and images and visual elements and so on. Not everybody has that spirituality. Please remember, visual spirituality is very praised. Like says Yogananda, one day I saw Krishna appearing in front of my eyes. It means if you don't see Krishna appearing in front of your eyes, you are not good enough as a spiritualist. No. It means you are not visual. That's all that it means. So maybe you have other perceptions, but not through the visual channel. The visual channel is very famous and very widespread. And that's why many things in Indian and Tibetan spirituality are described as visualizations. But today in the 21st century, when we know that people can also be auditory or kinesthetic, we have to find the prosthetics, we have to find the props which allow you to translate such a meditation from visual to others as well. As there was the attempt of Gyaranda with the mantras, that actually in Sahasrara there are some mantras and you think about the phonemes of Sanskrit, that's not really visual anymore. It involves an auditory awareness. But 
let us look at this jyotir. Jyotir dhyana, therefore, means like visualization types of meditation, meditations in the astral body, meditations on symbols, meditations on light. If you go lower, that light gets a form. It becomes very materialized, like a crystallization, like a materialization. But if you go halfway up, then it's not really a form. It's more like Jesus, or let's take another example, like Zeus in the Greek mythology. When he seduced a woman, he reigned over her like a rain, shower rain made of gold. A deity can appear as a shower made of gold. When God appeared to Moses, he appeared as a bush on fire, as a, as a flame, <coughs> not as a form. God did not want to show any form. He showed to Moses just a fire, a light. That's Tejo Diana. We don't even know if Moses saw that fire physically or if, or if Moses fasted for 40 days and he had delirium, and in that delirium he saw a fire like a hallucination. He imagined a bush on fire and that God was talking from that bush. It sounds very much like an astral vision. So here, Geranda, when he describes the mid-level, he says the Jyoti Dharana, these are meditations which are astral, which are like hallucinations of light. And you will see what he says, have to say. 15, Shloka 15. I've explained to you Stula Dhyana. Listen now to Tejo Dhyana. He changes the name, although the title is Jyotir Dhyana immediately and in the next five shlokas, he calls it Tejo Dhyana from Tejas. Tejas Dhyana, which in Sanskrit when you put as with D, it becomes O. It, instead of saying Tejas Dhyana, which brings one extra syllable and breaks the rhythm, you say Tejodhyana, which sounds much more fluid to the tongue. That's the Sunday in Sanskrit grammar, the joining of two words. So Tejodhyana, Tejas in Sanskrit means fire. So he acknowledges Jyotidhyana means light. Jyoti means light, but Tejas means fire. So for him, fire and light means the same because he means the light which comes from the fire element from Manipura, from the visual part of the human being, from the astral body, and so on and so forth. Here is what he has to say. I have explained to you, uh, now, listen now to Tejo Dhyana, the meditation of effulgence. Tejas is a word which doesn't literally mean fire. In Sanskrit, there are other two words, Agni and Vachni. Both of them mean fire. There are about three synonyms to fire, but Teja. Tejas means effulgent, effulgence, brilliance, like something which is shining, which is blazing in some way. So it's meditation of the fire is called the effulgent, the blazer, the blazing. So listen now to Tejo Dhyana, the meditation of fire, of effulgence, by which success or siddhi is attained in yoga and one reaches the supreme self or Atman. He starts pushing and now he starts saying this is <coughs> really going to Atman. With Stula Dhyana, he was not so enthusiastic because like that's the lower form. It's not that Stula Dhyana or visualization is not good, but he wants to create some proportion. He wants to create some 
escalation and he wants to show you, you know the more you go the more this one is liable to take you to the higher levels 16 shloka number 16 in muladhara chakra resides kundalini shakti under the form of a coiled serpent there is also jivatma or the individual self that is simply a visualization it doesn't correspond to the anatomy of yoga according to the anatomy of yoga Jivatman per se, Jivatman as such, is located somewhere close to the heart chakra. As those of you who did levels 4 or 5 of Agama know, in the initiation of yoga asana, where there is a special initiation description of that subject in yoga. So basically, here he doesn't say actually Jivatman is in Muladhara. He says this is a visualization. In Muladhara Chakra, visualize Kundalini Shakti under the form of a serpent. And there also imagine that there is Jivatman, the individual soul. Just to mention, it's like at the rock bottom. It's at the lowest level of consciousness. That's where you are when you start yoga. So there also is Jivatman, the individual soul, your soul, under the form of a little flame. A snake and a flame. In your root chakra. Meditate on this flame as Brahman in the form of light. Say this is little, it's in Muladhara, it's asleep, but still this is Brahman, this is God under the form of light. This light is Prakasha, it's the light of God, it's the uncreated light, it's as the Tibetans call it, the clear light, the primary light, the bright light so it says meditate it's a imagine that's what you do in your mind meditate on this flame as brahman in the form of light or tejomaya this is the excellent tejo dhyana see here you are not really using the form of anything physical like guru shiva statue deity it's just a snake which is a symbol it's a coiled energy a flame and this is still the cosmic consciousness. The Tejo Dhyana becomes more symbolic. Things are more symbolic here. And he gives two more examples. Very briefly. Shloka 17. Focus your attention on the root of the navel. He uses in Sanskrit the word Nabhi Mula. Which means either deep in your Manipura chakra. Or in the, in the Bija of Manipura. He doesn't say. He uses an ambiguous word where he says, focus your attention on the root of the navel and visualize the sphere of the sun as residence of the fire. He is giving here a very interesting image because he says that's where the fire element resides and visualize this as it is the sphere of the sun. He connects the fire in my belly button with the sun, which is a cosmic aster. It's a macrocosmic thing. And with a sphere, he calls it Surya Mandala. It's like a cosmic sphere. It's like a universe. It's like a galaxy. It's just a gigantic sphere, like the solar system is the sphere of the sun normally. So relate the navel with the sphere of the sun. Surya Mandala, again, means the solar system, strictly speaking, astronomically. And this is very interesting because it says meditate on the root of the navel but don't forget it's connected with a macrocosm. It's a microcosm, a macrocosm meditation. My fire and the fire of Shiva. My fire 
and the fire of the universe. My fire and the sun and the sphere of the sun. It's constantly a connection there. And then he hits it on the head by saying, meditate on this fire as pervading, he uses the word vyapti, which means like something which impregnates, like a sponge full of water, pervading the entire universe. This is another example of Tejo Dhyana. So you meditated on the earth, Kundalini Jivatman is Brahman. You meditate on Manipura, fire, the sun, the solar system, and pervading the universe. My sun is the cosmic sun. It's again a microcosm, macrocosm meditation. See how important those are. And finally, in the number 18, he gives a similar one, the third example. He says, in the middle of the eyebrows, above the manas, manas is placed right between the eyebrows, so above it, he refers to Ajna Chakra, shines a light, which the word used in the shloka is tejas, shines a fire, shines an effulgence, a brilliance, that has the nature of pranava or aum. That's a classic in yoga, because the energy of Ajna Chakra is illustrated by the mantra aum. That's the one mantra which is known to everybody and so beloved. So here he makes it a visual and slightly auditory allusion. He says it's in the forehead as a light like a fire, like an effulgence, and this light is nothing else but the manifestation of the mantra aum. So you choose if you go more on the mantra, more on the forehead, kinesthetic, or more on the light, on the tejas, visual. Meditate on this light as effulgent with flames, like alive, dynamic, like it's a, it's a living fire. Make it dynamic, go into it. This is yet another example of Tejo Dhyana. So he gave three forms of Tejo Dhyana, of subtle meditation. Meditate on Muladhara, Kundalini, Jivatman, connected to Brahman, God directly. Meditate on Manipura, fire, solar system, sun and cosmic fire, meditate on Ajna Chakra, the mantra Aum and the light, and he doesn't say, but you obviously can realize this light in Ajna Chakra must be related with the Maha Ajna Chakra, with the macrocosmic Ajna Chakra, with the third eye of Shiva, but he doesn't say it. He, is, you know, he leaves some things unsaid. You can see from the pattern of the two previous ones where it is going. It's going from starting from a symbol and a microcosmic visualization and moving to a macrocosmic level. Here, he doesn't. He just mentions the pranava aum, which is supposed to be the sound of the universe, the tonic, the fundamental tonic sound of the universe, the fundamental frequency of the universe, which leads to nada and all those things, for those of you who know a bit of Sanskrit phonemics. And thus... Uh, it is, again, the same meditation. Through Muladhara, through Manipura, through Ajna. Can you do it through Anahata? Of course, if he did it on three chakras, why not on any of the other chakras? But he described it on three chakras, just for you to get the point. This is how you do uh, astral visualization meditation. And finally, he moves to the end of it, which will conclude tonight's presentation where he speaks about the sukshma dhyana, the more subtle of the three. 
19, Shloka 19. O Chandha, you have thus heard about Tejo Dhyana, the fiery one, the subtle one. Listen now to the Sukshma Dhyana. When by grace, Kundalini Shakti is awakened. So, he says, this is about the rising of Kundalini. Therefore, this kind of meditation is not really possible before the people have studied a bit of Kundalini Yoga and they can feel these shudders of energy, the Kundalini rising. And he mentions it very clearly, a thing which many of our Kundalini students lose out of their perspective. And he says, when Kundalini is awakened by grace. That's how Kundalini is awakened. There is always a grace in teaching Kundalini and achieving Kundalini. Remember, Kundalini, when there is no grace, Kundalini does not awaken. So it's a very important point to keep in mind. Because some people take Kundalini for granted and some people got Kundalini effects even before they studied Kundalini Yoga and they say, but I have it. It's always been easy for me to do this thing. You have grace. It comes from a previous life. It comes from a blessing. It comes from something. There is grace. Kundalini rising is considered, or awakening, is considered to be off limits for the regular human being. The regular human being doesn't go there. 20. So when Kundalini, by grace, is awakened, it unites with Atman. So it unites with Atman. Remember the meditation where Jivatman was with Kundalini in Muladhara. And this is a very tricky statement because it says Kundalini unites with Atman and rises. Da, da, da. What does it mean? It, it unites with Atman. For many people... Kundalini is just a phenomenon of energy, like comparable to getting some goosebumps along your back or something like this. If that's what you think Kundalini is, then it has not become united with Atman. When it is united with Atman, it means that as Kundalini moves, so does Atman, which means so does the level of your consciousness. You can understand Atman as consciousness as level of consciousness. So he says, for the advanced practitioner, when Kundalini moves, the level of consciousness moves. Kundalini is not just an external, exotic, flashy, energetical circulation through the body. It's something which alters your consciousness. When Ramakrishna describes his experience with Kundalini, he describes it as a profoundly mind-altering experience. Like every time when his Kundalini is rising to another chakra, it's a brave new world. It's a completely new consciousness and way of consciousness. That means in the language of Agama Yoga that Kundalini is rising not only on the superficial levels, Kundalini is rising on the deeper levels and it affects the consciousness. That's not happening automatically. It's the result of a practice and it's the result of what you are being taught by your teachers. And thus, he says, when Kundalini raises by grace, it unites with Atman, like it takes your consciousness with it, and rises above the portal of the two eyes, the portal of the two eyes, that means above Ajna Chakra, and leaves the body via the royal path. By this it means that it goes all the way to Brahmarandra. The San this Sanskrit shloka, one of the most twisted in the whole text of Garanda Samhita 
because uh, he uses the word Randra with a double meaning. He means the portal of the forehead, but then there is also Brahma Randra. Nobody uses the Sanskrit name Randra for this. Everybody, when you say into a yogi, something Randra. What's Randra in yoga? Randra something. Everybody immediately jumps and says Brahma Randra. Because Brahma Randra is the name for the crown chakra, for the opening on top here of the head. So this name is used in such a tricky way so that it, it has a double entendre. If you are going to consult translations of this shloka, you are going to see that seven different translators translated in seven different ways because the Sanskrit is really impossible in this shloka. So it says it unites with Atman and rises above the portal of the two eyes and leaves the body via the royal path. This is not easily seen due to its high frequency of vibration. It uses some a word, the Sanskrit word chanchala, which means like vibrating, and it simply it, it brings in the concept of vibration. It says this is of such an exquisite vibration that normally you won't see it. Everything which goes above Ajna Chakra is invisible for the normal human being. It's happening at a level of vibration which is Spanda, and it happens at a level of vibration which is way too high, way too subtle, way too quick and too refined for the normal person to, to understand. That's why Geranda knows this, and he says Kundalini rises above the, the eyes to Ajna, leaves the body via the royal path, this is not easily seen due to its high frequency of vibration. 21. Then, when this is done, the rising of Kundalini like this, the yogin attains success in meditation and accomplishes fully the Shambhavi Mudra. He says, this is the real Shambhavi Mudra, where your Kundalini goes to Ajna and tends to move higher up from Ajna to Sahasrara. There are levels of Shambhavi Mudra. There is Shambhavi Mudra, which we teach in day seven of Agama courses with a simple ping pong ball. There is the Shambhavi Mudra, which I described a couple of months ago when I did the satsang of the chapter four from the Geranda Samhita, I'm sorry, chapter three, where I talked about the mudras. And there I spoke about Shambhavi Mudra, and it's about visualizing effulgence, visualizing reality. And here, he moves it towards Sahasrara because it's about visualizing God. It's about visualizing spirit. It's about visualizing Sahasrara. So he says, then when you do this, the yogin attains success in meditation and accomplishes fully the Shambhavi Mudra. It would be like Shambhavi Mudra stage three. This is Sukshma Dhyana, which must be kept secret and is difficult to attain even by the gods. This is an often mentioned statement in yogic literature. They say, if you don't have a physical body, and if you didn't come to the earth, and if you didn't read Geranda Samhita, and if your teacher did not teach you some things, even if you float in the world of the gods and you have all the knowledge available, you can't do it. Mysteriously, you can't do it because you need a physical body. You need some of the nadis, some of the channels of energy from the physical body to get it started. And if you don't have it, it's like you don't understand how it can be done. This statement exists about 10, 20 yoga techniques in the pantheon of yoga, where different yoga masters say this is difficult to achieve even by the gods. Like 
be really, really, really happy when you got it and when you can do it because you are doing something which even the gods are envying you for being able to do that. This crossing from Ajna to Sahasrara is something which even the gods can't do because if they could, they would move from Ajna to Sahasrara and they would reach enlightenment. But they don't. They are prisoners of the Deva Loka. They stay in the world of the gods, of the Devas, and there they have to fulfill karma and dharma according to their condition of deities, while you can go directly to Sahasrara and transcend that condition. That's the marvelous condition of having a human body, of being born as a human being. <coughs> so, he described Sukshma Dhyana as a rising of Kundalini going in Ajna and from Ajna to Sahasrara and as a spiritual form of Shambhavi Mudra, Shambhavi Mudra in, one, in which one sees the light of the spirit. Tejo Dhyana, the middle one, is a hundred times superior to Stula Dhyana. Pretty radical thing, yeah? Stula Dhyana and then Tejo Dhyana is a hundred times over. And the excellent Sukshma Dhyana is a hundred thousand times superior to Tejo Dhyana. It may be an exaggeration in numbers. Sometime there was a time when somebody accused me that I may have pushed some numbers. It's a typical thing in the Indian texts. They don't really care if it's literally a hundred thousand times stronger. But they just want to say it's way, 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 way stronger. And then the number 100,000 is good because that's a typical number. It's one lakh in India. It's one of their favorite numerals, one lakh and one crore, which is like <coughs> 10 million times. So 100,000 is a very special number. And the author said 100,000 times better no, than it probably in Europe you'd have said a million times or a thousand times, just to emphasize. Because a hundred thousand times is a clumsy number. But in India it's not. It's one luck. It has a special name, this numeral, and it's very popular. So he told you Sukshma Dhyama is a hundred thousand times better than Tejo Dhyana. Tejo Dhyana a hundred times better than Stula Dhyana to, to encourage you to go to the higher ones. And he concludes in the shloka number 23 by saying, Thus have I described to you, O Chanda, the precious dhyana yoga by which one attains direct realization of the self. He uses the word Atman, so it's clear. This makes it praise, praiseworthy and distinguished. Like meditation is special, distinguished, it's something else. Praised so much, it's lauded so much, and not without a reason. So he described three levels of dhyana, out of which the highest one for him <coughs> is a meditation involving a mixture of kundalini and shambhavi mudra. This form of kundalini and shambhavi mudra has been picked up by the people from kriya yoga. If any one of you is going to go deep into kriya yoga, you are going to see that the advanced Kriyas, the number four Kriyas and so on, they are consisting of Shambhavi Mudra and Ajna Chakra. They don't go too much in Sahasrara mysteriously, but uh, they picked up this thing with 
the element of the superior Shambhavi Mudra. And the colophon, the final ending of this chapter, says, thus ends the sixth lesson of the Geranda Samhita in the dialogue between Geranda and Chandra, Chanda, called Dhyana Yoga, one of the seven sadhanas of Gatashta Yoga. Gatashta Yoga means yoga with the body. Gata is the body described as a pot, as a clay pot. That's Gata. So Gatashta Yoga is the general name which was used in the beginning of this text, like yoga done with the body, with the clay pot that is your body. So in Geranda Samhita, which is a dialogue between Geranda and Chanda, which talks about Gatashta Yoga, there are seven sadhanas or seven chapters, seven lessons, and this was the sixth of them called Dhyana Yoga. It reminds to everybody about the whole context where we are. Then follows the chapter number seven, which if I start now, it will, will last here until beyond 11 o'clock, so I will not do it tonight. I expected maybe to finish tonight, but there are always a lot of additional things to be commented and explained on some of these shlokas. So it means next time uh, will be the last time for Geranda Samhita, the 23 shlokas of the lesson number 7, which is called Samadhi Yoga. About Samadhi, this one goes to the very top and describes the methods or the understanding which Geranda has about the state of Samadhi, how to achieve Samadhi, how to train into Samadhi. He spoke about the three forms of meditation only in the previous chapter. With this, we finished. This was chapter number six. We finished for tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining the satsang. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.